Hey guys, just a quick note. As some or all of you know, I am Ukrainian American. I was born and raised in Ukraine. And so in my business sense and my hard attempt to support freedom and to stand with Ukraine, my company, You to Shine, has launched a line of products where 100% of the profit goes to buy much needed supplies for Ukrainian people and then ship them without overhead, without any cost, all run by volunteers who are close, clients and friends, um, both here in US to acquire supplies and then in Ukraine. With that, if you would like to participate in this effort, please go to store.u2shine.com and that is S-T-O-R-E dot Y-U-2 S-H-I-N-E dot com. With every product that you buy, the profit from that product goes 100% to support Ukraine. Please wear the gear with pride and share the word. Thank you so much and much love to you as you stand for freedom, as you stand for peace, and as you stand with Ukraine. In the world of many internal and external voices, the voice you listen to is the voice that dictates your life. Would you like to discover a clear path to a life of freedom and fulfillment? Then welcome to All About The Voice podcast, where we focus on awareness, alignment, and action in order to live a life of abundance. I am your host, Victoria Rader. What if you were wrongfully convicted of a hideous crime you did not commit? Moreover, what if prior to you being proven innocent, you would have spent 16 years in prison? Jeffrey Daskovic, founder and president of the Jeffrey Daskovic Foundation for Justice, is a voice for justice, for hope, and for freedom. Jeff engages in this advocacy as his life mission because he spent 16 years in prison for the crime he did not commit prior to being exonerated by DNA. Jeff's foundation has freed 11 wrongfully convicted people and helped pass eight laws. Jeff is also an advisory board member of the coalition group. It could happen to you. He sits on the Global Advisory Council of Restorative Justice International and is a co-owner of the Recharge Beyond the Bars reentry game, which facilitates the formerly incarcerated reconnecting with their friends and family. This is his story from being wrongfully convicted to becoming a voice of conviction for freedom. All right, Jeffrey, welcome to All About the Podcast. I am so thrilled that you are joining us today. I am as well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Jeff, so your story has touched my heart, has warmed my heart, and I know it will reach and speak to somebody there today on a level that only your voice can reach them. And I think that's probably why you and I have had a few false starts preparing for this interview. It had to have a perfect intro. So in a country where one is presumed innocent until proven guilty, your story was very different. Take me back to that 16, 17 year old boy what happened i was arrested for a murder and rape which i did not commit i was coerced into a false confession and that was at 16 at 17 i lost the trial despite dna matching me 
put the wrongful conviction caused by that coerced false confession, prosecutorial misconduct, fraud by the medical examiner, terrible public defender. And ultimately, I lost seven appeals, got turned down for parole prior to being exonerated through DNA testing. You know, I am a possibility coach. I talk about things being possible in a good way. My mind can wrap itself around that something like that was possible. And I find myself gasping for air saying, how could it happen? So when you say you were coerced for confession, talk to me a little bit, talk to our listeners about what actually happened. How was it staged and what was the process? I just want them to, for a moment, be back there with you so they can relate better. Sure. So for context, let me quickly share that coerced false confessions have caused wrongful convictions in 25% of the DNA proven wrongful convictions and particularly vulnerable people are those with mental health issues and also with youth. So in terms of my false confession in particular, so firstly, there was a six week run up to that. Well, firstly, I appeared on the police radar, came to their attention because they interviewed some students from the high school that the victim went to and that I went to. And because in school, I was quiet and to myself, I really kind of stuck out there. You know, and so when the police interviewed some of the students from the high schools, they told the police, well, they might want to talk to me. I guess their thinking was people quiet and loners and to themselves are commit heinous crimes. I guess that's the theory. But then also, I was a sensitive teenager. This was my first brush with death. And I did have emotional reaction. And the police thought that that was suspicious, that I would have an emotional reaction to the murder of someone I barely knew. They thought that that was some sort of outward sign of feeling guilty. Then they got a psychological profile from the NYPD, which claimed to have the psychological characteristics of the actual perpetrator. And I had the misfortune of matching that. So it was a type of reinforcing factor. So for about six weeks, the police played this cat and mouse game with me, in which half the time they would speak to me as if I was a suspect. And the other half the time they would pretend like they needed my help to solve the crime. They would say things like, the kids won't talk freely around us, but they will around you. Let us know if you hear anything. Stop in from time to time. They would ask me opinion questions and congratulate me that my opinion was correct. Prior to being a teenager, the career I wanted to have when I grew up was to actually be a police officer. And so that was how they were able to pull the wool over my eyes. In addition to that, I came from a single parent household. My father was never involved in my life in any way. And that intersected with the good cop, bad cop technique in which one officer was pretending to be my friend when I began to look up to him as a father figure. So eventually they got me to agree to take a polygraph test. And so they said, we have some new information in the file and that will allow you to be more helpful to us. But first you have to take and pass a polygraph. So the next day, rather than go to school, I went to the police station for the test because it was a school day. My mother and grandmother thought that I was in school, so they did not call around looking for me. They drove me to the town of Brewster, which was in Putnam County. They took me from Peekskill, which is in Westchester, to Brewster. So it was about 40 minutes away by car, which meant that I was not able to leave on my own anymore. I was instead totally dependent on the police. I didn't have an attorney present. They didn't give me anything to eat the entire time I was there. They gave me a four-page brochure, which explained how the polygraph worked. But then it had a lot of big words in it, which I didn't understand. But then I thought, well, I'm here to help the police. So what does it matter? Let's just get on with it. From there, they put me in a small room. 
the polygraphist, by the way, was a Putnam County Sheriff's investigator, but he was dressed like a civilian. He never mm -hmm. identified himself as law enforcement. He gave me countless cups of coffee to get me nervous. And then he launched into his third degree tactics. So he raised his voice at me. He invaded my personal space. He kept asking me the same questions over and over again. And, you know, as each hour passes by, my fear increases in proportion to the time. Towards the end, he said, you know, what do you mean you didn't do it? You just told me through the test results that you did. We just want you to verbally confirm it. So he said that to me after, you know, interrogating me for six and a half to seven hours. And that statement really shot my fear through the roof. And at that point, the officer who had been pretending to be my friend, he came in the room and told me that the other officers were going to harm me, but that he'd been holding them off, but could not do so any longer, that I had to help myself. Then he added that if I did as they wanted, that they would stop what they were doing, that I could go home afterwards, that I was not going to be arrested. Being young, naive, frightened, 16 years old, not thinking about long-term, only being concerned with my safety in the moment. I mean, I was in fear of my life. The fact that I didn't know where I was and no one else knew where I was either loomed very large in my mind. I was overwhelmed emotionally and psychologically. Then there was the push-pull dynamic, the possibility of harm and this false life preserver he threw me. And so I made up a story based on the information which he had given me in the course of the interrogation in the six weeks run up to that. By the time everything was said and done, I had collapsed on the floor into a fetal position, crying uncontrollably. Obviously, wow. I was arrested. I was charged with murder and rape. Now, Jeff, how did you make it through those long 16 years? Combination of factors. Uh, belief in God was one thing. Another thing was I used to go to the law library and learn the law, and that gave me a sense of empowerment. I used to read articles about other people who were exonerated, and that would be inspiration to keep going. Another thing was there was another wrongfully convicted prisoner there, and we kept each other going for 13 and a half years. So once every six weeks, we would meet up and try to keep each other going morale-wise, and the other part of the conversation, we would brainstorm about what the next move was to make. And so ultimately, Frank Serling was exonerated a couple by DNA a couple of years after me. I wasn't just naively believing that another prisoner was there who was innocent, but he mm -hmm. actually was. Mm -hmm. Another aspect of it was I used to engage in an elaborate delusion whenever I would play basketball or ping pong or chess. I would pretend like I was a professional player and so were the people that were. But it wasn't like kids fooling around on a playground. This was more like I needed to leave the prison mentally for a couple of hours. And, you know, that was how I did it. And another thing was I would cut out pictures of nature scenes and hang them on the wall. And I would look at them and travel there mentally. Then, you know, usage of euphemisms, like I wasn't in my prison assignment in the morning, in the afternoon, but I was going to school or I was going to work. I would listen to sports talk radio, but it wasn't listen to sports talk radio. This was more like a lifeline to the outside. But the other thing to understand is that, you know, I didn't really look at it like I was doing 16 years. You know, my sentence was 15 in life. I thought I was just doing a year or two to the next appeal which I was sure I was going to win. So that was another big way of how I got through everything. 
Uh, this is amazing, right? Amazing conviction to me, truly, you know. And of course, I've worked with mind and freeing the mind mm. and through visualization, through creating reality we want. And your story is just such a powerful validation of that, that while maybe your body was incarcerated, and I'm sure you had those many dark moments when the mind was trapped too, that at the end of the day, you were free before you were freed, you know, just kind of go it that way. Absolutely true. Yeah. And to build on your point, it wasn't just the absence of freedom, but it was also, I had to keep fighting all feelings of hopelessness, helplessness, thoughts of giving up, suicidal ideation. In a lot of ways, you know, I feel like I realized that I really didn't have the luxury of losing my mind because I knew that nobody that I already knew was coming to my rescue. And so if I was going to get out of there, I was going to have to try to recruit somebody that I didn't know already and hope that they could be, build that bridge between me and the legal help that I needed to get out of there, as I had read it happen in some of the other cases that ended in exoneration. And so to do that, I knew I was going to have to hold it together. You've mentioned you've lost seven appeals. So what happened on that day that you finally found out that you were free to go? Take us to that day. That day or the day before that when I got the news? Which one? Ooh. Both. Start with the news. Okay. All right. <laughs> Start <laughs> with the news. <laughs> yes. So the guard opened my cell and I walked down to see what he wanted. And he said, you know, you have a visit. And so I, I wasn't expecting anybody to come see me. So I had him call the visiting room and make sure that it was a visit. He didn't make a mistake. Mm-hmm. And he confirmed that I had a visit. And so I ran back to my cell and I had this special visiting room shirt. To everybody, you know, that you put on your best shirt is you're in a close to a public place as you're going to get, right, in the visiting room. And so as I'm putting the shirt on, I'm hurrying up because there's quite a distance between my cell and the visiting room, and I needed to get there before a certain time period happened. Otherwise, I would be waiting for like an hour and a half to get in the room, the visiting room. And I get in the visiting room, this woman is waving her hand, or waving at me and smiling, but I never saw her before. And I thought maybe she was confusing me with somebody else, or maybe she knew me from in the visiting room when I was in some other prison. So I just waved back and I asked the guard, well, who came to see me? And uh, the guard looked like I was nuts and said, well, don't you know who came to see you? So I didn't want my visit to be canceled. So I said, yeah, of course I do. (laughs) So I went over to this woman that was waving and she, you know, identified herself as, you know, being my attorney. She mentioned her name and she said to me, the DNA items have been tested. And so I said, well, well, what do you what do you mean? They're not supposed to be tested for another month. And by that point, you know, I've, I've lost seven appeals, sometimes on technical grounds. So like my antennas are up just looking for anything outside of the ordinary because that normally spells bad news. <laughs> wow. Uh, and and uh, yeah. So I said, what do you mean? They're not supposed to be tested for another month. And she says, no, the, the district attorney had the items moved up and they've been tested and. You know, they match the actual perpetrator and you're you're going home tomorrow. And I said, and I said, no, I'm not. And, and we went back and forth three times. And then over the next, I had this three and a half hour of mental paralysis there. And she, she literally held my hand and, and uh, all these thoughts, my mind was spinning and all these different random thoughts were passing through my mind. And one thought had nothing to do with the other. And none of it had anything to do with what she just told me that I was going home. And I was articulating all this madness out loud. And every now and then she would just break in and say, 
are you ready to talk about tomorrow? <laughs> and I said, no, no, just, just uh, keep this away from me. No, we're not talking about tomorrow. I'm not entertaining this. Okay, I'm not going home. Okay, I can't hope anymore. My heart is like destroyed from all these seven appeals and losing parole and four years of letters that my hope went out on those letters only to crash and burn as well. No, I'm not. No, it's no. And what really made it real at the end was he said, well, look, the visiting hours are almost over and uh, there's a ton of work to do between today, between now and tomorrow. I have to get the, the clothing size, your shoe size. There's a lot of work with oh. the media. And that really is what made it real. And, and I felt better for about five minutes. And of course, then a different concern popped into my head. I thought, well, something's going to happen between today and tomorrow. And the district attorney is going to change her mind. And, you know, I'm still going to be here. So that was the day before that was getting the news. Amazing. Amazing. So how did you overcome that shock when the day came to come home? Yes. So that was the next day. And, and by the way, that night they had the, they had left an intern at the Innocence Project for me to call to have someone to speak to. And it was kind of a bizarre conversation because I'm on the phone with this stranger that I've never seen before, never met, never spoke to. And I'm talking about going home and, you know, all these different things associated with that. But all of my, everything my senses are telling me, it's all of the prison. You know, I see the, the, the wall, the barbed wires, the prisoners in their uniforms, the guards in their uniforms. So that was like the opposite of what my senses were telling me. Uh, so I couldn't go to sleep that night. I, and I had the adrenaline running and there was um, a prisoner in the cell next to me that I knew from a different facility and he agreed to stay up with me. So like we were like, we held the mirror outside the cell bars. So we had the visual and we were just chit chatting all night, taking turns, holding the mirror. You know, your hand gets tired. Uh, <laughs> so, so the next day, uh, you know, the next day, um, you know, they bring some bag. Well, firstly, he, he, that prisoner, talked the guard into giving me a shower before I went to, to court, oh. before the guard actually knew that, you know, so he kind of took a chance with that. Um, but then, uh, then they brought the, they brought ba garbage bags for me to start putting my stuff in. And, and um, then they, you know, and, and so at that point, so I decided to, I decided, I remember the saying when I had first gotten to prison and somebody said, I heard a couple of other prisoners saying, one person said to another, man, if I, if I win my appeal and I go home, it's going to be like somebody in here hit the lottery because yeah. I'm going to leave them all of my stuff. And so for some reason that, that saying like from like 16 years ago popped into my head and I decided to live another man's dream. And so with the bags, I just separated the few things I needed to take with me and everything else I just packed up, you know, and I was going to leave to somebody. And so my cell opens and I'm supposed to just bring my stuff downstairs. But instead, I run and ran half a block. It would be like the equivalent of half a block to someone else's cell. I dropped off this stuff and, you know, he, oh, my God, thank you. Just hurry up and take the stuff and put it yourself when the guard comes because you're not allowed to give anything to anybody either. So I made like three trips and finally the guard yells up, Deskovic, what the F are you doing up there? Get your rear end down here now. I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. Right, so I go downstairs and um, you know, I bring that one bag that I am 
bringing with me. And, uh, you know, as, as they're bringing me to this room where everything is going to be inventoried and put in a bag, you know, I'm looking for people that I, that I knew because I'd only been in that prison for 28 days. I had spent most of my time the, the prior decade in a different facility, you know, but I'm waving to a few people that I, you know, that I did, uh, that, that I did know. You know, and uh, so we go in the pack up room and we itemize everything and the guards say, look, we're not bringing even that one bag. We're not bringing all of that. OK, so you just decide what things you're mailing and what what you're going to bring with you. And I, the only address I knew at that point was the, uh, the Innocence Project's address. I didn't even know the street address where my mother lived anymore. Wow. So I sent it there. You know, they took the uh, ID. They took like a photo and made like a temporary ID card. And uh, so it was time to go. And the guards come up to me with this, this chains and handcuffs. And I looked at him like he was nuts. And I said, what are you doing, man? You're bringing me to court in order to go home. You know that I'm going home. That's why a coworker just took my photo and gave me the, the temporary ID. I mean, what do you think? I'm going to try to escape on my way to court where the <laughs> judge is going to let me out. And then they told me the last thing that I wanted to hear which was, well, the judge might change his mind, so we oh. can't take a chance. Oh. So that was terrible. So a different guard said, don't worry about it, Mr. Deskovic. This is the last time you're going to be in chains the rest of your life. So oh. you know, they, put the, they put the craziness on me, but I held on to that statement. I just, you know, got, I just got to have you say it again. Just say it again. This was the last time. Yeah, this other guard who was sympathetic to me said, don't worry about it, Mr. Deskovic. This is the last time you're ever going to be in chains the rest of your life. Oh, that's so powerful. So I kind of latched on to that and kind of ignored their putting the stuff around me, you know, this chain and handcuffs and all that. And then we left the prison and we're headed to uh, White Plains, the county court. And as I'm in this car, I'm in handcuffs. I mean, I'm seeing people walk on the sidewalks and other cars passing us by and going the opposite direction. And I kind of marveled just at the as the worlds passed each other. You know, where just a wow. few feet of steel between my reality and theirs and how they were totally obvious to, to, to mine. And, and so finally we reached the court. And we went we went downstairs and um, uh, one of the court officers, I hear him talking to the correction officer and saying, who, who, who is he? And, you know, what's he doing here? And the guy mentions briefly to him and he says, oh, well, that makes sense because there's a ton of media upstairs. And, you know, we're all wondering what's going on, you know, and then the guy, then he looks at me and says, what are you doing here? And I well, I was wrongfully convicted and they're going to, they real, the court has finally realized they made a mistake and I'm going home. And, and that's when he said, well, See, things like that, that that's why I don't believe in death penalty, because what if somebody innocent is executed? So he said that. So then um, I'm, I'm waiting. They're moving me around from one place like they're, I'm gradually making my way up the building and being put in various holding cells. And I knew from yesterday before that, the lawyer told me that uh, that the co-founder of the Innocence Project, Barry Sheck, who was co-counsel on that case, that he was supposed to come and see me and talk to me and let me know that everything was everything's still good. I'm still going home and I'm going to get a suit to put on and everything. So hours are passing by and there's neither, neither sign of suit nor of check. <laughs> and so I'm starting to get worried now. I'm thinking something's going wrong. Uh, and, you know, just before that, they, there was this br terrible brown bag lunch that has like a, this, bologna sandwich that was made the day before so the bread is all moist and there's a 
cheese sandwich in it that's like dry. You know, it, it's a small bag of potato chips that's mostly air. And so the guard gives this to me for lunch. And I said, I don't, I don't want that. I'm, I'm going home. I'm going to have a real meal. So he said, look, I got to give it to you. What you do with it after that is up to you. So I take the thing and put it on the side. But as more and more time is going by and nothing's happened, I'm not seeing any lawyer. You know, I'm thinking to myself, well, this thing is obviously going wrong. And by the time I'm done here and go get sent back to the prison, you know, it's going to be past lunchtime and it's, they're not making anything special for me. I'm going to be waiting another four or five hours. So uh, I better eat this. I need this. <laughs> so I so I hate the thing. And, and finally, they send me the suit and I put the suit on and everything. As I'm walking down the, the, the hall, they they take another security measure. They want me to stand at the far side of the hallway furthest to the doors so that I don't try to run through a door and escape on my way to the courtroom where they're going to let me go, right? The, the lunacy continues. <laughs> and uh, and so we, we get to the door to be to be let in the courtroom, and they told me, look, on this first side of the courtroom is, you know, your family's there, and on the other side is a ton of reporters. So they open the door, and, you know, as I start to, walk in. I still have on handcuffs, by the way. And so I walk in and people are waving to me, but I'm nearly not paying attention. I'm really looking at for the media. I'm looking, can I recognize anybody that crucified me previously with all these prejudicial articles, you know, uh, about about me, you know, and looking, you know, I, I told you I was innocent type of thing. So I didn't recognize anyone. I walk over to the table and Sheck is there and he, and he says, I he says, I talked to the judge in the chamber and you're definitely going home today. Wow. So, yeah. so this judge comes out and the case is supposed to be in front of the judge that presided over the trial. Right. But he I think that he ducked the assignment. So he this other judge that was the had the least amount of seniority. He kind of got stuck with this undesirable <laughs> assignment. You know, so he kind of rushes in. You know, my lawyer speaks, the prosecutor says the same thing. And, you know, and then the judge orders the conviction overturned and he rushes out. I mean, I got the distinct impression like he didn't want to have had anything to do with this at all whatsoever. And so I got up to leave. And then kind of the enormity of the moment hit me kind of like a ton of bricks. And, mm. you know, and so I, I, I sat back down, you know, and, and then my lawyers are talking to me and you know, I hear them, but I don't hear them. I hear them and they're fading in and out. And the court officers cleared cleared the court out. And so after maybe 20 minutes or half an hour, um, I, I got up and every step I took towards the door with nobody stopping me, it got, it got more and more real. There was a court officer standing at the end and she was trying to be stoic and professional, but I saw the water running and I look up at her and, and I said, thank you. And she said, uh, she said, good luck. You know, and I went outside and I remember it was a blue sky. I didn't see any uh, clouds or anything, and everybody was uh, cheering. There was a lot of people from the Innocence Project, and the law students were all, uh, you know, were all, were all, were all cheating, were all cheering. And it was time to speak at the press conference. And you know, when it was my turn, I mean, I, I said, "Is this really happening?" <laughs> and from there, everything I had ever wanted to say, but could never get anybody to hear me say all came out. And just as I thought I was finishing up, another topic crossed my mind and another one, another one. And, you know, so I spoke off the cuff, maybe two, two and a half hours. 
Well, you were heard. You were heard. You know, as you describe that walk towards the door, it just reminds me of that quote, you know, and I pulled it up by Nelson Mandela that's so aligned with your message. After 27 years in prison, he said, as I walked out the door toward the gate that would lead to my freedom, I knew if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I'd still be in prison. Now, you left a lot of things behind. You left those chains. You left your belongings. And with them, you left a hope for somebody else. But you had to have made a choice to leave that bitterness, that hatred, and that mental prison behind. How did you do it? And how can someone who maybe is not in as dire circumstances you are today, what can they do to make the similar choice to leave that anger, the bitterness behind and choose real freedom? Well, I was angry a bit of that first week. And, you know, I, maybe 90 days before, maybe, maybe like 30 days or so before I got out, you know, there was somebody else exonerated and I saw a news clip of them while I was in the prison and they were saying that they were not angry. And I remember thinking to myself, well, that's, that, that, that's the silliest thing ever. No way am I making that mistake of saying what he just said. So I was angry you know, that first week. But at the end of that week, you know, I felt like it was destroying me. And that saying of his came back to me. And, you know, and, and then so I, I felt like I wanted to enjoy my life as much as I could. And I can't do that if I'm angry or bitter. Um, you know, I feel like I lost so much already as is. Why would I want to, in effect, lose the rest of my life? A third thing was that it's not like if I was angry or bitter that I would be adversely affecting anybody. I would really be the only loser in that scenario. And the vehicle that allowed me to accomplish that is I take that energy and I channel it into the uh, advocacy work um, that, that, that I do. You know, just working to free people and I'm an attorney now. And, and another thing is that maybe kind of a close Part of that is that, you know, I know that, so my mission in life is to free wrongfully convicted people and to do this preventative work and broader justice reform. And so I really look at what I experience, you know, I make sense of it in that kaleidoscopic uh, type of way. And I find that to be healing and cathartic and meaningful and making my suffering count for something. And with that, I have a level of acceptance and I have some inner peace uh, about myself. In terms of how other people, what other people can do, I think drawing lessons from, you know, my life of being wrongfully imprisoned and even the difficult time, the first five years of my freedom before I was compensated or difficulties trying to get into law school, trying to graduate, trying to pass the bar, the whole sum total of my whole um, life to date, I would say the formula can be boiled down to have a goal, have a realistic plan. You know, you should be able to look at it three or four different ways and think to yourself, yeah, I can see how this would work. Because who wants to carry out a plan that you don't think has a chance to be successful? Uh, be flexible. Remember that the goal is the goal. The plan is not the goal. So if an unexpected door or opportunity opens for you and it brings you towards that goal, you should walk through it, even though that might not have been part of your plan. Another thing is uh, accept no excuses. So there are no reasons why you can't accomplish something. There might be a reason or reasons why something's more difficult, but no reasons why you can't accomplish it. Uh, work really hard. 
So it's when you put yourself in position for a miracle to happen, for a breakthrough to happen, for someone to open a door for you, that, that's how things are accomplished. It usually doesn't just drop in your lap while you're doing no effort at all. And never, lastly, never give up. You know, when you can't go on anymore, you remember that could be the key moment where you're on the verge of a breakthrough. But because you gave up, it won't happen. So when that happens, I tell myself that and I say, so even though I can't go on anymore, I'm going to anyway, just to see what happens on the other side. And then once you come out the other side, you have to reach back and help people in the same position that you were in. And that's how your suffering counts for something. That's how you draw a meaning. And that's, uh, you know, you get to some inner peace and make the world uh, a little bit better and do some work on the preventative side as well. And that definitely transcends uh, wrongful imprisonment or incarceration. I mean, that could apply to people that uh, maybe have faced discrimination or sexism or racism or someone that's been homeless, another person that uh, suffered a debilitating illness, uh, somebody else who's uh, maybe been, been sexually assaulted, a domestic abuse survivor. So I've seen since I've in my 14 years of freedom, people from, you know, those different walks of life or difficult circumstances, challenges, et cetera, and other things that then once they overcame those uh, challenges that they then reach back and do work in that area and help, help people in the same same position. So I know that that's universal and it's something that people can actualize. Well, I love this path that, you know, I've jotted down that this path of empowerment, I would call it, you know, that you, you set a clear goal, you have a sustainable plan, be flexible about the plan. I love that. I love that. You know, I once heard goals are for growing, not forgetting. So I just love that. And then no excuses. You can have excuses or results, but not both. <laughs> Work hard, never give up. And then, of course, the part that touches me so much is that once you have a breakthrough, don't give up until you have a breakthrough. But once you have a breakthrough, reach back and you've spent you've spent your life after exoneration reaching back. And uh, you know, as, I've, as I've mentioned, while introducing you have changed the lives of so many. And I sure hope that those that are listening can empower you further to change the lives of others as well. I have a couple last questions for you, Jeff. The first one is, from this point of where you are in your life, going back to that scared, lonely, isolated 16-year-old boy, what would you tell him today? This would be after they got the false confession from me or before that or after that? Whenever you think you need this advice the most. I would say be brave, hold it together that you will over that you will overcome you will overcome this that this will not be this will not be forever. It's powerful. If you are that scared boy right now, scared girl, I hope you heard him, right? I hope you heard that powerful statement. Be brave. Be brave. This will not last forever. And now, Jeff, looking forward into the future, your future self, looking at you now, I'm sure there are daily struggles. And yes. what would what would be the advice you'd receive or that you so need from your future self right now? 
continue on with the journey because while what you want to achieve, which is having a really large profile as a civil rights advocate and wanting to have a chapter of your foundation in each state and ultimately, you know, in, in, in each country, while that's great and you struggle with not enough resources at the moment that just continue on the, your your path and that help will find you. You just have to keep working and keep positioning yourself for that. And the, at the right moment in the right way, the right doors will open for you. Yeah, that's so powerful. So powerful. And uh, I've watched an interview with you where you graduated law school. And I just loved the line there that I jotted down where you said, I know what it, what's at stake here. It's somebody's freedom. As your overall message to All About the Voice, what, what does freedom mean to you? Freedom means to me that it's the freedom to enjoy simple things like fresh air, sun on your face, freedom of movement. Freedom is ability to experience the world through try, trying new things and new activities, trying new food, going to new places uh, to, to travel. Just the sheer level of opportunities that exist in the world as contrasted by the extreme limitations that a prison has. You know, I, I do believe that, you know, most things, the majority of things that you set your mind to are, are achievable, the majority of things. So all that's all that is part of all that's part of, free, of freedom to, to me and really within the limits of the law, you don't really need to answer to anybody other than yourself, uh, your higher power, your conscience, you know ethics, but that's all self-imposed rather than, somebody being in a position of authority over you. Wow, that, that is such a powerful definition, Jeff. This has been a very enjoyable, very profound uh, interview. I know I'll go back and listen to some of those insights that you've shared over and over again. And meanwhile, how do we support you on this quest of giving that same freedom to those that are currently being wrongfully convicted? Well, we definitely, well, we, we have a crowdfunding site on the Patreon website, which I know you're going to leave the address, but if you dream with me for a moment, Victoria, you know, what if there were 25,000 people? What if there were 100,000 people that were willing to sacrifice $3 or $5 on a recurring monthly basis? You know, imagine the budget that would give us for a year. That would increase our capacity for how many people we could, we could, we could work on freeing and how many states we could push policy changes aimed at preventing what happened to me from happening to others in the first place. So that's definitely a way that people can assist. Maybe they work for a corporation that does corporate philanthropy, and if they can suggest us, that certainly would be a way to help and you know maybe they do someone traditional media or you know new media which really amplifies the freedom of speech you know it makes the message more uh accessible just you know maybe there's a place you could again suggest having me on as a guest i do do 
presentations across the country and internationally. So usually the way that that happens, one person suggests it to somebody else, and they reach back to me, and before you know it at all, it all comes together. So that's certainly a way of, of uh, assisting. And uh, beyond the contribution at the Patreon site, we need people to, I need to get out of my network and into the network of other people. So certainly word of mouth and, you know, sharing on social media would, would uh, really help. Uh, Amazon has the Amazon Smile program. So somebody could register for the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation as their charity of choice. And, and when they make purchase on Amazon, Amazon donates a small percentage of that purchase to uh, the foundation without it increasing the bill to the consumer. So those are all um, different ways that people uh, people can uh, assist, you know. But I think generically, though, you know, there's a lot of different careers in the field: uh, attorney, investigator, paralegal. But there's other ways too. I mean, within the setting of a nonprofit organization, you know, there's disciplines of fundraising and social media and public relations and uh, grant grant writing. Uh, on the reintegrative side, helping people rebuild their life afterwards. There's room for social workers and psychologists. Um, some people make documentaries or podcasts or docu series. I mean, that's that's another that's another way of of, of uh, that's another way of participating. If you are a lawyer, you should think about doing one case pro bono and on a wrongful conviction case. Um, certainly, people um, that become staffers of politicians or people who run for office. Very important to vote people into office and out of office who people just vote people in of either party that are for justice reform and vote out people who are opposed. Uh, very important to exercise your civic duty by serving on juries. Too many people try to get out of jury duty. We need people to be on the jury really scrutinizing a case and, you know, the prosecution proves guilt, then you know which way to vote. But if they don't prove it, then you know you're supposed to vote not guilty. But many people don't serve on the jury and we get people that are really not that critical. And that's part of how these wrongful convictions happen in the first place as well. Oh, that was very helpful and uh, a lot of ideas I wouldn't even, you know, think of. So very resourceful. And what would be your final message to All About the Voice? Follow the voice. What I mean by that is the voice is your dream. The voice is you at your highest possible potential slash contribution to the world. It's better to, it's better to chase your dream, do everything you can to turn it into reality. It's better to do that, and even if it's not actualized at the end, it's better to have tried that than to have just played it safe and don't and don't uh, try it. You know, in order to be in, in in order to be the hero, you have to be willing to be the goat. <laughs> I love it. Being in a sports metaphor, right? <laughs> I mean, that would be yeah. So. That All of the boys, be willing to be a goat. I love it. Jeffrey, thank you so much for this fantastic interview. Thank you very much for having me. Jeffrey Deskovic chose freedom over bitterness and hatred. 
His pain has become his purpose. A documentary short about his advocacy and life post-exoneration called Conviction is currently available on Amazon Prime. If Jeff's voice for Innocent has resonated within your heart, please consider donating to his cause at patreon.com backslash Daskovic. That is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com backslash D-E-S-K-O-V-I-C. This is All About The Voice podcast, and I want to hear your voice. What has been of the greatest value to you today? Share your insight and share this episode with others. All links are in the description. I also want to invite the voice of happiness into your life via our iHappy Daily and iHappy Me apps, our daily energy boosters. You can download these apps, including a free version of iHappy Me from the Apple App Store or the Google Play App Store. For the voice of daily encouragement, grow with us with our free My Tree of Life Facebook group. If you want to join us in exploring how you can live your life with more freedom, head over to youtoshine.com. That is Y-U, number two, S-H-I-N-E dot com. I can't wait to get to know you and be a part of your journey of endless possibilities. Thank you again for listening to All About the Voice. I'm Victoria Rader, and I'll see you on the next episode.